Steve August Falchett to episode one of the Crazy House Prices podcast uh, with me, Kieran McQueen. If you don't know who I am, I run the Crazy House Prices Instagram page. Today is a conversation I had with Dr. Lorcan Sir, who is the senior lecturer for housing in TUD. Um, I recorded this Patreon. I recorded this podcast for my Patreon um, and I wanted to share with you guys on the main podcast now as the first episode because I think it is such an important conversation and I think people need to hear the facts and the figures in this conversation. And after the chat with Lorcan, then I will run through some of the questions that you guys sent in. So without further wait or listen to me bang on, here is my chat with Lorcan, sir. Now, patrons, I am very happy to say Lorcan Sir has agreed to come on and uh, talk with me about housing and educate us all on everything that's going on in housing. So, uh, hello, Lorcan, and thanks for for joining us. Yeah, hi, Kieran. A a pleasure to be here. I I don't follow you on Twitter because I gave up Twitter a few years ago, but I hear you're very popular and successful, so uh, that's great. I'm I'm delighted to be here and have a chat with you about this. Thanks. Yeah, I don't know about popular or successful, but uh, (laughs) it gets a lot of interaction anyway. um, So I suppose we just might have a quick chat about why we are where we are in terms of the housing market, um, where you think the solutions lie and your prediction, as everyone will always ask for the next couple of years, where are we going to go in terms of house prices and government policy as well and and all the rest and I know you lecture in TUD so uh, for once uh, my patrons don't have to listen to someone uneducated and unqualified talking shite but they can actually listen to somebody who knows their stuff. Lots of academics are <laughs> they might be qualified but it doesn't start from talking shite as well Karen in fairness yeah <laughs> uh, where, where, where are we start then do you want to start where like why we are where we are kind of stuff yeah like what, what do you think has led us to to we're ba- we're pretty much now at Celtic Tiger house prices again um and in a lot of parts of the country we we're above it uh so like is it just down to government policy that we got here is it down to any other external factors like uh what do you think yeah, I think government policy definitely is a huge part of the problem, but also behind policy is ideology. And, you know, it's very easy to blame successive ministers. And, and we've had a succession of, you know, not great ministers, if we, if we put it politely. But behind that, we've had the permanent civil service there in, in the background, effectively writing policy and bringing it to the minister. Uh, and I think that's the core of the problem is the ideology of a lot of the civil servants uh, who, who write that policy and that ideology then gets translated into policy. Nearly every policy that we've had, so there's a huge relationship between planning and housing. Planning kind of facilitates the delivery of housing in many respects um, to regulating it and its, and its supply. Um, a lot of the planning changes that we've had in recent years have made housing actually more expensive and not less expensive. So building high, for example, we move to building heights uh, limits. It's expensive to build high, right? And the more units you can squeeze onto one site. So if I have a 10-storey building, I can squeeze, say, 50 units. And if I've got a 20-storey building, I can squeeze 100 units. The more units I can squeeze onto a site, the more valuable that land is. The more a builder has to pay for the land, the more expensive the output is going to be on the other end when they're finished, whether they're for rent or for sale. And the same with reducing, say, apartment sizes for build to rent. The more units you can squeeze on the land, uh, the more expensive the land becomes, et cetera, et cetera. So we've had a huge, we've had a, a plethora of planning policy changes at the behest of the property and development lobbying industry that have simply made housing 
even less affordable for everybody else. So that's partly part of the problem. The other, and related to that, I suppose, is the other thing that people don't really realise is that although housing output has gone up a huge amount, it has gone up a huge amount since, say, 2017, 2016, 2017, it's gone up by nearly 45% uh, in the last five years or so. But actually, the, what, what has gone down is the amount of housing for sale that comes out of that increase, if you know what I mean. So the amount of houses that we're building for sale every year has gone down. So back in 2017, nearly half of all houses that we built come to the market. And that was about average, right? So people think that we built 20,000 houses, 20,000 houses appear in Shay Fitzgerald's window. They don't. You know, it does a lot of them are one-off houses, you know, your typical one-off bungalow down the country, whatever. And a lot of them are social houses. And that was typically, it's like there was social housing uh there was one-off housing and then the rest you know typically housing estates so nearly half of all houses used to come to the market about five years ago it sounds like a different century now but yeah now. Uh, and last year that was less than 28 percent. and in numbers that was about 5,700 5,691 something like that houses so in, as output has gone up in 2021 so you're so yeah. what you're saying is in 2021 less than 6,000 houses were available is this you? Is this homes now, houses and apartments? Uh, this is how anything coming to the market. Yeah, yeah. But apartments don't come to the market really. Yeah, yeah, 95% I know. Yeah. of apartments are going to the funds. So last year it was five thousand six hundred ninety-eight houses actually, houses, apartments, whatever uh, units came to the market. You know that used to be fifty percent of all of all housing. So what, what's increased though? What you see? So housing output overall has increased. So you have the question. The obvious question is now, like, what's driving the increase? And there's two things. One is social housing has increased the proportion of housing that has been used for social housing, new housing has increased from about 11 or 12% to, to over a quarter now, 25% of housing. Um, and that's not necessarily from councils building brand new houses, which you would like to think is, you know, would be great, but actually most of that is from them buying houses. So that for every house they build, new house they build, they're buying two brand new houses. Again, you could argue, and, and Charlie Weston in the end does argue regularly, from under the noses of first-time buyers, you know, yeah. houses are out for every one they build, they're buying two. So that's one part that's driving the increase. And the other part that's driving the increase is built rent the institutional funds, and they've gone from about 10% of the housing output in 2017 to, again, nearly a quarter uh, last year. And the problem with them, of course, is that, well, they're expensive and all that kind of stuff, but they're, they're, what they build doesn't come to the market. Uh, it's for rentals. And, yeah. you know, when you look at housing policy overall, the build to rent is a good example of it. We've put a lot of policy faith in a very niche and expensive product for a very niche group of people, which are the well-paid tech sector. And, you know, what happens to ordinary people then, the indigenous, you know, Dunlaners or Galwegians or Corkonians or whatever, uh, and they, they get squeezed out of the market uh, hugely. And there's a little mind painted them, painted them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean it's the same thing happens in Seattle, same thing happens in San Francisco, but we've actively encouraged it here, which is kind of becoming a problem, I think. And that's, that goes back to the kind of tax breaks that the real estate investment trust get. So let's put some numbers on that because i want to write this down so let's say so so you said the change in the percentage say from 2017 to 2021 uh what were the numbers in 2017 in terms of how many units that were built were going to rent say how many built to rent was there in 2017 compared to now do you have those numbers there yeah well built to rent was about 10 percent of all output in 2017 so that'll be you know, 1,500 units, something like that. Uh, and last year, it was a quarter, so it was more like, you know, 5,000 units, something like that, you know, just over 5,000 units. So it's going up, like, it, the numbers are small, right? But the output is small. 
So as a percentage, it, it, it's quite high. The, the issue with these is that what we can see then, so that's the housing output numbers, right, from the CSO. So we can see yeah. that housing output for ordinary people is plummeting, right? And for wealthy people, it's it's on the increase and social housing is on the increase. And we should never, you know, social housing, we need lots of social housing, to be honest with you. Uh, and that's a good thing. But, but where you see other things happening is if you start looking at who's buying what, Mm. out there and this, this kind of puts kind of flesh on it then as well so you see and the way to do that is to go to revenue and start looking at stamp duty transactions so who's buying what you know how many units and all that kind of stuff and we can see that again five years ago the what are called now non-household transactions so that's basically funds and local authorities or you know approved housing bodies uh, everybody other than households effectively they were about 16 percent of all stamp duty transactions in 2017 and last year they were 41 percent and first time buyers then in 2017 they were like 54 percent 53 54 percent and last year they were 36 percent so so nationally you can see them going down in, in dublin it gets even worse in dublin the non-households have gone from like 36 percent to 65 percent and your ordinary first-time buyers have gone from like 56% to 31%. It's like the inverse, if you know what I mean. So you can see that, like, I would argue that first-time buyers in particular, but everybody has been kind of displaced by the advent of new housing types. And, and when you look at nationally, or, or, or indeed in Dublin, it's not just first-time buyers. We can see in Dublin that second-time buyers are movers, you know, so that's not necessarily older middle-class or middle-aged people. It's, you know, some guy and a girl, a guy and a guy, whatever, got get together. I went bought an apartment in their late twenties, early thirties. Got together with somebody, want a house big enough yeah. for their needs. Um, and their second time buyers or, or movers, or whatever, they're down like forty six percent in Dublin. So they're, they're not moving because there's nowhere for them to go. So there's no churn in the market. So all so when you start to realise these kind of things, you see why prices are high and probably why they're staying high. Yeah, and don't look to be coming down anytime soon. Not through good no. policy anyway, unless uh, unless the, the, the economy shits its pants mm. and then and and we lose out that way. But yeah. no one really no one wants to see that. And I've been saying that for years. Like I want house prices to come down. I just bought a house. I don't care if the the, the value of that house yeah. drops like because I bought a home rather than an investment. But um yeah. but I've been saying it for years like we need these prices to come down because and it needs to be because of good policy rather than everyone losing their jobs again, which like it would be another recession in my adult lifetime. And I saw the devastation the last one caused and I'm still personally dealing with it every day. So it's uh, it's not what we want, but we want it to come down through good policies. Yeah. So I suppose touching on that, like what, so, so people that are listening to this now, they might want to go back and, and re-listen to those numbers again, because they're pretty, pretty devastating, like for, non-households so that means non-owner occupiers basically going from 16 percent five years ago to 41 percent of all yeah, that's national yeah national it's even worse in dublin yeah of all transactions and and it's worse again mm-hmm. in dublin because of the the amount of institutional funds i suppose involved in dublin mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. social housing being much more needed in dublin than than outside of yeah. dublin so people yeah. might want to go back and listen to those figures again because it, it's yeah, it's yeah. shocking but where can we go like what where, what can be done or what do you think where lies the solution i keep beating the uh the vacant site levy not so much vacant home tax because i think they need to tax the the value of the the site and the land rather than just the house um yeah. so maybe like a vacant site levy but i like 
you're you're the qualified person in this you're the, the you have a phd in all this i i know nothing so am i wrong in that or would that help or what do you think like what should be done yeah i think there's multiple strands to it to be honest with you and you can start at the top and like you know the big the big uh kind of thinking shift that needs to happen and then you move down to the meso level and the micro level and at the micro level we're dealing with things like introduction of a site value tax um a one-stop job for converting the of the shop um, kind of units into accommodation, putting a bit of manners on the short-term lets uh, and actually enforcing that kind of rules, making the registry, the land registry, registry deeds, identification of property ownership easier. Uh, and I think we need a land price registry because really we don't know what's going on in the land market because we have no official statistics. And about the government and they voted that down recently. The government did. They, they That was Keno Callahan's bill, I know, and but the government uh, said no. Yeah. And I can't understand why they said no. Well, I can, uh, but but logically you can't understand. But at the, at the macro top level, I think one of the big problems that has bedeviled housing policy is the idea that increasing supply is going to bring down prices. And I just put it out there, guys. Right, for those of you who are listening, increasing the supply of housing, the supply of housing would have to increase so much. All other things being equal, as the economists like to say, see through as parables, right? Uh, to bring down one percent, uh, to bring down the house price by one percent. But of course. Things are never equal, and we've got changing employment rates, wages, inflation, stagflation, deflation, different zoning, different people involved, the whole lot. So you can never rely on housing supply to bring down prices. It's not going to happen. And if you want to be really crude about it, uh, like the, the bottom line is that builders don't build when prices are falling. So this economic dogma that seems to be devil the policymakers that if we build enough housing, prices will come down is nonsense. It has never happened. And if you look at any uh, housing stats from the CSO or whatever there, go and look at them and you'll see that as we built more houses, particularly up to the, the great economic unpleasantness, um, you'll see that house prices track them. You know what I mean? They, they went up with them. So builders won't build if prices are falling for a start. So there's time your, your supply and you need to build, you know, you, we need to build, all things being equal, we need to build 2 million houses in the, in the country. We need to build 21,000 houses to for prices to drop by 1%, right? By 1%. Now we're building 21,000 houses the last couple of years, but everything else isn't equal. And we have a war in, in Ukraine and we have inflation. We have a whole lot of things. So you're, that's never going to happen. And so until they get their heads around that at the top level, I think we're still going to be in a bad place. I, I think ultimately, and I've seen the figures, I know how much it costs to build an apartment, how much it costs to build a house. There is no, all roads seem to lead back to, in terms of control and quality of price and all that value for money to the state getting much more involved in the development of housing itself. And it doesn't want, again, it's a kind of an ideological predisposition. It doesn't really want to do that. But no matter who you talk to, whether they're a property developer, whether they're an academic, whether they're whoever they are, architects, anything, they when they do their analysis, all roads lead back to this. And it's it, it, it makes a lot of sense in many ways because in the long term, in the medium to long term, if you can guarantee employment for the construction of, say, 8,000 houses a year by the state, and we used to do it for sale, not, not, not just for, for rent, yeah, my father bought his first house from Kildare County Council and got the mortgage from them as well, you know, back in 19, whatever it was. Um, so we could do that, but you can guarantee that steady amount of employment through good times and bad. You can set up training programs for apprentices. You can do a whole lot of stuff with that. And it wouldn't compete then with the high-end housing that's also going to be built. So I, I think, you know, all roads lead back to that, but there's an ideological problem um, with policymakers and, and particularly the kind of centre-right politicians about the state getting involved because they're very much into current expenditure and not into capital expenditure. So they think that if they built, you know, 10,000 houses, it will cost them three 
the underground apartment. Actually, housing, all you need is seed funding for housing. You build 100 houses, you sell them, you take the money, and you build the next 100, you take the money, you build the next 100. Yeah. You don't need to, to rob the European Central Bank to do this. Yeah. So, like, are you talking about setting up uh, a government-run construction company, so to speak, that can that can build itself? Or are you talking about the government acting as the developer and hiring private private builders say like Okulon um to to build not-for-profit housing schemes on government land is that what you mean yeah i think i think the days of local authorities of the state having lads with shovels uh out there doing this stuff is kind of is gone um so what would happen and what typically happens nowadays when, when i say a council directly builds a house it's not council workers there's a qs and a project manager quantity surveyor and a project manager and they organize the contracts and they go out to tender and sisk and roadbridge and whoever will will compete uh, and stick in their tenders and they build it for them um, and I, I think that's what needs to be it needs to happen um, but when you people a lot of people don't seem to understand that you know in the private market a builder's margin the sales price of a house bears no relationship to the cost of building it right so your builder's margin can be 10 percent or can be 50 percent depending on what they get from the market you know what people are willing to pay for their house well this the is cost what of building, I was, the house stays roughly the yeah. same that's what i was just about to say because i see this a lot as well with the the price of new builds um, I've seen it nearly every day now where the price has gone up and up and up for the next phase of development or whatever. And the builders will say it's gone up 60 grand a house because our our costs have gone up uh, or they put up that POA and often it goes up. But I maybe this is just because I've been doing this so long now that I've just gotten so cynical. But maybe I'm thinking that it's because let's say I'm a builder and I'm going to an estate and I've 50 houses in a new development for sale my 10% margin, say, which would be standard, the house sale is 400 grand, okay? Um, but I get 500 applicants, 10 times more than the houses I have, who can afford 500 grand. So I'm going to put the price up to 500 grand. With their help to buy loans. Yeah, exactly, with their help to yeah. buy subsidies and everything else. With yeah. the help to buy subsidies. So all of a sudden, now my profit has gone from being 10% to being, what's that, to, to 66%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you know? Yeah. So, and it's yeah. like... Am I wrong there, or is that actually what's happening? No, no you're absolutely right. Like the worst thing that people can do, right, is register their interest in a housing development, because all you're doing then is gauging how many people are interested in my new house, and then you'll set the price based yeah. on that. And at a phase at a time, like ten houses at a time, you're not going to set the price for all of them because yeah. that would be crazy. So your builder's margin. Like, so the cost of construction again, a lot of people don't kind of get this. The cost of construction is absolutely bears no relationship to the sales price. Cost of construction stays relatively stable uh, all the time, and and the but the sales price will fluctuate. So but the, other, the point I was kind of starting to make there was that if you're a private developer, your profit margin is going to be 15 to 160,000 million percent, depending on what sales price you get. If you're a builder, so I built on an extension in on this house last year, the bill, a builder's margin, if they're doing work for you, is more like 5 to 7%, not 15 to 150%. So to employ them directly, and construction costs will fluctuate without that. But, but when you take away, when you are working with a fixed profit margin, you know, a fixed margin for these guys, uh, well, then you have kind of certainty around the prices. Uh, and then you know what you can sell them on. And you don't need to build and pay for them all at once. You build, the great thing about houses is you can build them at fa- in phases. Because one of the other things that's caused a huge amount of unaffordability in housing and the wrong type of housing being built effectively is the obsession with density and high rise. 
and policymakers confusing density with high rise. Yeah. You can have really dense housing, you know, really dense housing without going above three stories, you know, but yet there's an insistence on having really high buildings and, and going up, and that just makes construction more expensive. And then whatever comes out the other end, rents or sales prices are just going to be more expensive. So we've done things kind of wrong, on, on, particularly on the planning front. So just on the on the height thing, because personally, I don't really care what height a building is, uh, and I've never objected to anything real life. I don't really. You would if it was in your back garden. <laughs> yeah. But there is. I'm I'm in the tent. So everything up around me is is uh, yeah. huge. Like uh, there's all stu- like literally looking into my back garden is a is a whole new uh, student accommodation. It doesn't bother me to be honest. But what what so like people will you hear this all the time? Like why can't we go? 15 20 25 stories so what is the argument against that is that it makes it doesn't actually make it cheaper it because it increases the value of the site it's on mm-hmm. so people will end up paying more is that what you mean also more expensive well there's two things one it's really expensive to build that's the seven stories gets really expensive also we have fire issues we haven't got a fire brigade ladder in dublin that can go above seven stories so there's huge amounts and we've reduced standards now so you can have a single stairwell so you imagine in a fire on the 10th floor people coming down the stairwell at the same time as Dublin Fire Brigade are trying to go up the stairwell in the middle of the night in smoke and darkness, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of secondary. But what it does, it's very expensive to build. So you're not going to make housing, you're not going to build a for housing that is affordable for anybody if you're going high, right? So it's it's all kind of niche, uh, niche product. But the other thing that it does is that, so you're in the tenters and there's, you know, a, a, a multi-story, say, apartment block beside you. All the land now around you in the tenters has now gone up in value because that because they squeeze more units on it. So that means it limits the pool of people who have the potential to buy those sites, which means there's a lack of competition, which means there's only a handful of people in Ireland who have the deep pockets to buy those. And they typically are the funds who don't have to go to the banks for money. And they only want to build one thing, which is built to rent. So we've there's an EU report from a couple of years ago that said one of the problems with our housing market here is a lack of competition. And yeah. that's what they were referring to. You know, we've made we've made the SME builders in Ireland who do your traditional who do your traditional housing and and uh, all that kind of stuff are are um, they're basically been excluded because you know they don't have the deep pockets to, to go in and compete with you know the large ones. Yeah, yeah, um, right, interesting. Okay, a lot to unpick yeah, there. You know, there's a huge amount. My head gets fried on a regular basis. I know. Trying to, I, myself, trying to unpick it and make sense of it, you know. I get like that as well. I get very overwhelmed with it sometimes. And I just have to turn off, like mm. just put the phone away. Um, so yeah. in terms of what, like, what can I do or what can people do? Like I get, like I understand that my page now has somewhat of like, I don't like the word, but somewhat of like, say, an influence in terms of people come to me and they're like, what can I do? Who do I email? Mm. What What can I do in terms of trying to, get it get a, a seismic shift here in terms of policy making um in terms of trying to get people to just get it because like most things in life people don't get it unless they're they're in the in the trenches and trying to buy a home or may i'm getting a lot of people messaging me saying maybe their their kids have now started to look and now they get it they're like jesus now yeah. i understand how hard it is <laughs> but you know you know karen you shouldn't have to get it effectively like a citizens like the same way citizens shouldn't have to take judicial reviews citizens shouldn't have to understand the nuances that you and me understand of the of the housing system you know what i mean they shouldn't have to it's complicated it involves construction planning finance management procurement all that kind of stuff and they shouldn't have to understand that there should be an available supply of housing. Not necessarily, you know, it's not going to be in abundance, 
but but in a wealthy country with only five million people, like we're the size of a small city, you'd think we'd be able to supply a decent amount of housing for people. You know, yeah. not I'm not saying flooding the place with huge housing estates, I'm saying just a reasonable amount. I think when people come to you, I think the thing they can they can press their politicians for at the door or however they do it is the number of houses coming on the market for sale. As got is now down below six thousand, even though output is rocketing. Uh, well, you know it's increasing maybe fifty percent in the last five years. That's that's a statistic that the politicians find really hard to defend. Okay. That they've let a free for all for anything else, uh, except they've kind of ignored your average person on an average wage in an average household. They're, you know, gone. You know, I mean, they're 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 of no interest. Anybody between thirty six and and ninety grand as a household. Is in real trouble. Yeah, and that's something I've been saying for a long time. Is especially in Dublin because we're, as a teacher, I see it on. I see it every day. We we cannot get staff. We cannot get subs. Any new quali- newly qualified teachers are leaving the country. They're going over to the Middle East because they get three times the income. They don't pay any tax. They have a nicer lifestyle. They get the sun. They go to their brunch, whatever, every week. And then in a few years, they look at coming home with a couple of hundred grand saved up. Um, so like a lot of the the substitute teaching we're getting at the moment. So think, usually you would have experienced teachers coming in. Every single sub now is a is a student student teacher which is great and it's great that they're able to make a few quid now but like it's they're 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 unqualified and and we shouldn't be relying on them to uh fill the fill the holes in an entire profession and that's like because people aren't they can't afford to live in dublin um and teachers can't afford to live here so there's a housing policy has it's it's so embedded in our how we live because right? we all need a house right? it has knock on effects everywhere and the, the one line that I use that and maybe people might hopefully remember it is that good housing policy is good social policy it's also good economic policy it's good education policy it's good health policy it's good transport policy it's all that and housing is at the centre of that so we have good policy you wouldn't be having the issues that you're having in your school yeah. you know what I mean and there's and, and the economists in particular are really bad at, at recognising the links between health and housing between equality and housing, gender and housing, right? Uh, between transport, housing, planning, all that kind of stuff. So it is more to housing than money. It's a system. I, I never really refer to it as a market because it's a system. It's an ecosystem in itself, you know. That's a good, yeah, housing system rather than housing market. But I, I guess that's kind of where we're going, aren't we, in Dublin, in terms of people just can't afford to live here. They're priced out of it. So who's going to run the hospitals? Where are the nurse going to live? Where are the guards going to live? Where is your barista going to live? Where is the, the people that work in Lidl and, and wherever you go, you do your shop? Like, where, where, where are they all going to live if we're well, so well, I tell you where I, I tell you where they're living. Well, A, they go home. But B, um, where they're living is that like, the largest number of new houses that are getting built is all into commuter belts. And they're houses that are for sale because, because there's nothing being built for sale that's vaguely affordable in within the M50, right? But the, this is this is housing policy going forward in reverse here, right? But that idea of building houses that's all car-based, right? Mm. Out in Kildare, Mead and Loud and all those places, right? Uh, is contrary to A, our climate emissions targets and yeah. B, the National Planning Framework. Yeah. So, but like housing policy is, is is actively acting against other policy, other government policies, which yeah. is crazy. You know, and there's no point in having an A1 passive house, BR rated passive, really cool graph if you've got two diesel BMW cars sitting outside the door. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, you're you go one way and she goes the other way every morning, and you know, because there's no decent public transport. Totally, totally so, agree. And I suppose 
Another thing that I'm seeing a lot online, uh, you're dead right to get off Twitter a few years ago. I, I need to get off myself. <laughs> I don't even I don't even put time into it. And every time I go on, there's another thousand followers on there. But yeah. what I see a lot is um, there's this narrative out there at the moment that the reason prices are so high is because people keep objecting to developments people keep objecting the nimbyism or whatever is causing this now i don't think that's the case because i think there are like over forty thousand planning applications granted that just aren't being built because the value of the site keeps going up and up and the, the longer they delay building the more valuable the site is and then they can flip it say they bought for 300 grand they can now flip it for 3 million that kind of thing that the kenny report showed up in 1970 Specu- speculation we call it here yeah, speculation yeah. yeah um so like what is what is the counter argument to that like i don't think it is nimbyism that's driving up no, prices of course but- it's not nimbyism itself is an offensive term it's called public participation you know and we all have a right to do that we're holding power to account that's one of the like that's part of your social contract that that people like you and I can hold power to account. And one of the ways we do that is by challenging people. Uh, and we have every right to do that. It's a disgrace that people have to take take judicial reviews. Uh, it's a disgrace that people have to take judicial reviews and go to the high court. Ordinary citizens in residence groups who might not have any money at all. That's an absolute disgrace that they have to they even have to do that. And it shows you how that it's really bad planning policy, and it's not. It's not kind of nimbyism or, or you know, people taking judicial reviews because Borkland and Nala have lost or conceded over 90% of every judicial review that's been taken against the strategic housing development. So that's bad planning policy. That's not people objecting to it. But you're right, there's, there's like planning permission extent, like there's existing planning permission there for tens of thousands of units that have never been built. Uh, and what they've got to with the fast track planning system was fast track land speculation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the idea, and now the plan is to shut down people, you know, routes for people to go and and actually challenge these kind of stuff. That's that's mm. anti democratic, but it's wrong. Like people, like you know, I it's a journalist dictat more than more than academics. But you know, you comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Like, and you know, being able to challenge people and hold people to account is really is really important. And you see the debacle now in Barcelona. Yeah, you know, what's going on? What's going on there? And that's that's more of it. That's just bad governance on many levels. Um, and why shouldn't people be able to hold these 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 people to account? You know, and it should be easier for them. In, in countries that have a, a relatively functioning housing system, uh, and where houses actually gets built, they do. It's we're determined to shut down public participation here. In countries where it works, where the planning and housing system works, and they turn out houses, there's more public participation, not less. And they do it earlier, and they do it more often. So when the planning application goes in. There's no objections. Mm. So you're talking to do the opposite. You're talking cities like, say, Vienna, um, where Antwerp. else? Like Antwerp. Yeah, those kind of cities. Yeah, that have it. Freiburg, those places. You do public participation, and you do you do more of it. You do earlier, not this token stuff that a lot of the guys do, particularly where you live, where they'll come around and have an evening in a community hall or a school hall, and they'll basically show you their plans and bamboozle you with glossy photographs of what they're going to build. And to put that down as consultation, that's not consultation. Consultation is where there's kind of equal power between people. That's just telling you what we're going to do. Uh, so you need proper consultation and you need plenty of it. And then, you know, the system works really well. But we're determined to do worst practice, not best practice, yeah. by shutting down, you know, people's ability to participate. And a lot of it is like, you know, the, the development and, and investment, you know, lobby complaining about this. But there's no evidence behind it. Uh, when you go and look at the statistics about objections and things like that, there's no evidence. And the other thing is they all do it. 
Fine Gael will have a lash at Sinn Féin, uh, Fianna Fáil will have a lash at Fianna Gael or Sinn Féin or whatever, right? But you go back to the, the, the objections on the Burton Law website, you find every political party, Bill Varadkar objected, Joan Burton when she was there, you know, there's loads of objects to all sorts of things. Yeah, and that's like one thing I always get really annoyed with because whenever I get asked on, like, say, talk shows or whatever, and there's a couple of politicians there, it happens every single time. It's like it ends up just being the two politicians taking cracks at each other and no one actually talks about the issue that was at hand. No one talks about solutions. No one talks about what we should do. It's just them going, well, you object to this and you object to this and it's just nothing ever gets done. They can talk. They can talk down the clock. Down, you see, they can. Mm. You know what I mean. There's no time to discuss it because a lot of the. I find a lot of the politicians that, that go on the air, uh, and I don't go head to head. It's not my role. I have to go head to head with, with politicians. But if I listen to them or if I'm in like the late debate or one of those things, they're, they're generally uh, clueless or they're regurgitating stuff that either some policy person or a special advisor has given them, which is invariably wrong and taken from some you know some websites or something like that it's and yeah. you know oh we need to build loads of houses and that'll be down prices and you're banging your head against the mantelpiece listen to this on the radio like i know uh going, you know there's that doesn't work anywhere you know but yet they turn out the same amounts because they're generally quite ill-educated on this you know yeah, right. Lorcan, you're that a legend. Fun, as always. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. I could talk to you for hours about this, but I won't keep you any longer. We probably need, I need you to come back maybe on Twitter and just help us out because <laughs> fight the good fight because it's uh, it's not really getting anywhere at the moment. But look, I get no, it. Um, I re- really appreciate it. Um, you have some really good figures and stuff. I might try and and get some of them off you and jot them down or maybe a couple of images or whatever to put under the post so people can because i always find when i listen to these things and numbers get thrown out i'm like i need to see them you know yeah visually yeah, as yeah, well. yeah no uh, sorry yeah i know i've a lot of data there and i get yeah. excited and they start throwing it out but, <laughs> but you know, the, the, the general trend isn't good folks yeah. yeah yeah okay well anyway i really appreciate it thanks so much Lorcan, and uh, i'll talk to you soon yeah pleasure thanks kieran a massive thank you to Lorcan for having that chat with me there. I know it's a really hard listen. It's very depressing. Um, but these are the facts, really. And this is the reality when it comes to new builds in Ireland. They are just pretty much unattainable. We can't compete against local authorities or councils or investment funds. It's just it's it's too difficult for regular people. Um, and when there's so few homes available for us new homes available for us to buy that puts all the pressure on the secondhand market so it's kind of it gives you an an idea as to why we are where we are why things are so bad and unfortunately doesn't look to be getting any better anytime soon but other than that (laughs) very depressing start to the podcast i want to run through some of your questions so uh, I'll give you a rundown of the questions that were sent in. So question one is, can a first-time buyer buy a house at an auction? Question two is advice for switching your mortgage. Question three is, should I go for a mortgage broker or direct to the bank? Question four is, if you own the property abroad, can you avail of help to buy? And question five is, where do you think the best value in Ireland is right now? So question one, can a first-time buyer buy a house at an auction? Yeah, you absolutely can. The problem with auctions are it is usually, if you if you win the highest bid, that's it. You have to buy that house. It's not like your regular process where you go sale agreed and if issues arise, you can back out. 
uh, it's pretty much your signing the contract there and then. So it is usually advised that first time buyers stay away from auctions um, or properties being sold at auction because if they're if usually when they're being auctioned off, there tends to be an issue with that property, whether it's title issues, whether it's a planning issue, whether there's mica or pyrite or whatever, there's usually an issue with that house, which means it hasn't sold for whatever reason and maybe it's not mortgageable, maybe a bank won't lend on it. So it's something to be aware of. I personally, as a first-time buyer, I wouldn't go near an auction, a house at an auction. I just think there are too many issues that can arise. Now, that's not to say people haven't had success with it and you and you might get a house uh, or a home for a, a better price, really, than you would on the open market. But it just really depends on the house. But personally, I would just avoid auctions just as a, as a blanket kind of thing because just I've heard so many horror stories of it. And as I said, you're on the hook then straight away. Question two then, advice for switching your mortgage. So if you go to my page, you will see a post on this that goes really into detail on exactly what you need to do to switch your mortgage. And I will do a full podcast episode on this because I think it's so important. You can save so much money by switching your mortgage, especially if you're on a variable higher rate and chances are you have a lot more equity in your home now because the value of it's gone up through the roof over the last few years so i always recommend people switch their mortgage and usually the worry is around you know if you're in a fixed rate um there will often be a kind of a breakout penalty there um but it's not always the case so for example we just drew down in september and we're looking to switch now because we want to go for a switch to a green mortgage and we actually don't have a breakout fee on ours. So it's worth just uh, getting on to your lender and seeing, is there a fee to break out of that fixed term if you're in a fixed term? If you're in a variable rate, then absolutely switch your mortgage. You can save hundreds a month. Um, go to like a comparison site and see what you can get for yours. So you can basically need to make sure you have a certain amount of equity in your home and, and what have you. But it's just like, literally it's fairly straightforward now you will need to pay solicitors fees it shouldn't be as much as a standard kind of purchase of a home uh, when switching to mortgage the professional fees shouldn't be as bad because your solicitor will have already done all the search things and all when you were buying the house uh, or the apartment or whatever so definitely something i would advise everybody to do is look at what the best rates are for you avant tend to be quite low rate um especially with the way things are with the ECB, interest rates are going up and up. So definitely lock in a fixed term and, and switch your mortgage. And as I said, you will have a lot more equity in your home now than you did a while ago. And question three is kind of along the same lines of that. Should you go to a mortgage broker or direct to a bank? And again, the, the, you can find great success with either. Uh, I personally used a mortgage broker and it meant that we could get an exception because the benefit of the broker is they know all the lenders on the market. They know who will have exceptions still to, to give out. If you need an exception, they know which lender might suit your circumstances best. Um, but I've also heard of people having great success going straight to a bank after having a nightmare with a broker. Um, so it really depends, I think, on how organized you are, uh, how clued in you are, how educated you are in terms of what you actually need to have ready. And if you have a good credit history and all the rest. If you're self-employed, I've heard people having better 
success going straight to a bank than with a broker. So I guess it really kind of depends on your own situation. I hate answering questions with it depends, but I mean, you can have great success with either. Personally, I used a mortgage broker for our, for our mortgage. And now with the switcher, we're looking to switch now to the green rate and I'm going direct to the bank for that. So I'm actually going to EBS because I did a, I did a seminar with them. I did a chat with them and I got chatting to the girl there and she gave me some great advice. So we're switching to a variable rate and we're going to get cash back. You get 2% cash back and then we switch to the green rate and lock it in for four years. So it's a, it's a bit of a no brainer really. So that's what we are doing. So I guess I could say you've, I've had success with both, but initially for us, the mortgage broker, we use mortgage one, two, three, and they were excellent. Um, Sean in there and he really did help us a lot and he made sure that we got our exception now exceptions I know aren't as easy for everybody we're two teachers with permanent jobs so we are the kind of you know golden couple for for a lender uh, and we had I did all my research and uh, as you know if you follow me on my page I did the saving 1.3 times and blah 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 so I made it so that it, I, I just knew in advance because I've done so much research, I made it easy for the lender to say yes to the exception, basically. So to answer the question, uh, you can have great success with either. The good thing about a broker is they will usually get their fee from the lender. So you don't usually have to pay them anything. So it's probably a bit of a no-brainer, really, to use a broker initially. And then if you're a little bit more confident and you know your stuff, then you could go direct to the bank if you know which bank will suit you the best. Question four, if I owned a property abroad, can I avail of help to buy the help to buy grant? Uh, no, you can't. So if you've ever had a mortgage on any property, whether it's in Ireland or another country, you cannot avail of the help to buy grant because you're not a first-time buyer. Um there is an exception on this if you inherited the home then you may be able to get first time buyer status from a lender that means you may be able to get the 10% deposit exception but i don't think you can apply for the help to buy grant on the new build but uh, i would definitely look into that and and apply and check it out on citizens information or whatever or talk to a broker but if you had a mortgage on any property whether it's in ireland or abroad you cannot avail of the first time buyer status or the help to buy grant and the last question where do you think the best value in ireland is right now isn't that a question everybody wants to know the answer to um personally well obviously it's hard to find value anywhere but personally i think houses in wexford and waterford are pretty good value considering you're right by the sea the weather's really nice uh i just kind of i have a bit of a soft spot for wexford because we're going there my whole life and i just love it down there but some of the houses you can find down there are outrageous and uh, like i was looking at one in wexford the other day with a swimming pool the solar panels heat the water and uh, it's a stunning house and it was like i think 600 grand and then you look at what that gets you in dublin and it's just like no comparison and I think the great thing about Wexford is it's only an hour, an hour and a half down the road if you lived in Dublin or if your family are in Dublin or whatever. So um, I'm sure you can find little nuggets here and there throughout the country. But personally, I just think the old sunny southeast is a decent value at the moment compared to, to elsewhere.
August Shine for the questions on episode one. Um, thank you for listening. I really appreciate all the, the good feedback I got from the trailer. If you like the podcast and you want to hear more, please subscribe and share and review and all of those things that other podcasts tell you to do, do them for me as well, please. I don't really know what it is, to be honest. I don't, I've never left a review. I don't even know how to do it, but if you do, I would appreciate it. Um, and if you want to support the podcast and the page and get extra podcasts and extra content, I, you can go to my Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash crazy house prices or the link in my bio in my Instagram. Uh, my Patreon community are amazing and I just am so grateful for them. Without them, the page would have shut down a long time ago. So I've loads and loads. Of, I've about 50 or 60 podcasts over there on the Patreon with experts, with with uh, mortgage brokers, with estate agents, with solicitors, with architects. Um, there's loads of stuff over there on the Patreon that go really in-depth on everything uh, to do with buying a house. And I have other stuff up there, like the letter we use to buy our house off market and all the rest. So have a look, head over to Patreon and uh, support the podcast and the Instagram page if you can. I would really appreciate it. And have a great week. Slong of folks.